The Future of Cities is presented by Katerra. Welcome to the Mission Daily. This week, we are previewing our new podcast, The Future of Cities. In season one of The Future of Cities, we do a deep dive into subjects affecting how our cities are growing and changing. Each episode includes commentary from industry-leading experts, including city planners, technology innovators, government officials, architects, builders, and more. This week on The Mission Daily, you'll get to hear the interviews we did for The Future of Cities in their entirety. Today, we share our interview with Laura Tam. Laura is the Sustainable Development Policy Director at SPUR. In this episode, Laura shared with us how designing smarter buildings can impact climate change and what it takes to make a sustainable city. If you like what you are hearing, please subscribe to The Future of Cities on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. Perfect. Okay. Can you say your full name? Laura Tam, Sustainable Development Policy Director at SPUR. Awesome. Laura, I am so happy to have you on today. I'm excited to talk about sustainability, talk about what you've been doing at SPUR and kind of the legacy that SPUR has over the last 100 years in San Francisco and beyond. And I want to start off with softball. Easy question. What's your favorite city? Well, San Francisco, obviously. I've lived here for more than 15 years and I've seen the city evolve and change in some ways not as well, but in many ways in in a great way. And I'm still happy to be living here. What do you love so much about San Francisco? First of all, it's a gorgeous city. We've added layers of human settlement onto the natural landscape that was beautiful to begin with. And the, the buildings we've built have only enhanced the form. I think we also have beautiful views and of the water and the water around us provides us with a wonderful climate. We also have just a wonderful, diverse culture here, which makes it a great place to do, try anything you want, any kind of food, meet all kinds of different people from all walks of life and from all over the world. And it's a great place to raise kids because their schools are very diverse and all activities are open to them to try. What do you think makes a great city? What makes a great city is a sense of community, a sense of place, a city that is safe and provides freedom for people to do what they want to do or what they're inspired to try. It's a place that that takes care of its people when they're struggling. It's a place that is welcoming to people to move to in search of a better life. And it's a place that uh, respects the natural environment and has, is growing with it in some way. And of course, I can't not say it's a sustainable city. It's one that's growing in a greener way that offers people the chance to live a more low-carbon lifestyle and a more resource-efficient lifestyle than they might be provided in other settings. I couldn't agree more. And when we're looking at sustainability, I think there's a lot of, and just like green cities and things like that. I mean, I think sometimes the the naming of that is like confusing of like what makes a sustainable city? What does something and like what does that kind of like really mean? So like what does it mean to be a sustainable city in in kind of your opinion? Okay. Well, to be a sustainable city, I think you have to look at your the natural resources and the environment around you and how you use those resources, as well as how you contribute or don't contribute, which is what we'd like to see, to the challenge of global climate change and of to local and regional environmental issues that you have a role in improving as opposed to making worse. So a sustainable city is one that is efficient about its use of water and electricity, and it's trying to generate that electricity from renewable resources as much as possible. And it's mindful of its contributions and is trying to reduce its uh, contributions to global climate change. And it's a city that is that is concerned about green infrastructure and about restoring the natural environment where it can, especially in hotspot places where there's, for example, a lot of biodiversity or a sensitive ecosystem like a wetland or something. It's also one that is educating residents around ways they can do less driving perhaps or live in a more efficient home or use less water as well as to care about the natural environment that surrounds it. So it's a it's a city that is continually working on lowering its ecological footprint while using those opportunities to educate people about 
our responsibility to the natural world and to other communities around us. So we don't export pollution to other places and things like that. You know, it's really interesting as I was walking around the spur offices here in San Francisco, I was looking at some of the brochures and the different things that you all have done over the past hundred years. And you see, you know, in, you know, 1911, in 1943, in all these different times that there's actual, you know, brochures and information going out to the citizens about ways that they can improve the areas around them. And I think that that was really astute observation because on your part to say that it's really about how connected the citizens are to the success of the city going forward. It's mm-hmm. like sustainability, I feel like, is is so much about just being aware, like being transparent, looking at the data, looking at everything and saying, hey, we have an impact on X, Y, or Z. You know, really, this is a total, this is an aside, but you know what I was thinking was, was a funny thing? You've heard of Glass Beach up in Fort yeah. Bragg? yeah. It's like this really weird thing for people who don't know, but it's this beach that has all these like beautiful, like what looks like glass stones. And it's because they are glass stones because people were throwing bottles into the ocean. It was like a local factory. And then they all smoothed over and made these glass, this glass beach. But that's a very tactical example of how something you have to be aware of. Like you can't throw your trash into the ocean. You can't do these things or there's you know, ramifications for that stuff. Right. I mean, it's, that's, that turned out nicely, but like a lot of the stuff we're throwing into the ocean is not turning out so nicely, but yes, it's very important to not just take care of yourself and think of yourself as a city, as an Island, you have a responsibility to the surrounding region, to the surrounding state, not to shift your consumption habits or your pollution somewhere else and think that it's just because it's not happening in your backyard, that it's not happening. So it's important And the education is important too. I mean, SPUR has been around, like, as you said, for more than a hundred years and it was founded by people to advocate for and bring citizens together to advocate for housing that wouldn't fall down and burn after an earthquake, um, after the great earthquake and fire had destroyed San Francisco or much of San Francisco in 1906. And I think that our mission for a long time has been about educating people about Issues in urban planning and issues in sustainability and opportunities for sustainable development. It's why we do so many public programs, walking tours and talks and and things like that, because we want people to know more about how their city works and what the leverage points are for continually making it better. Yeah, I think it's I think it's really important. And, you know, obviously this podcast is in the same line of of educational and making these things interesting to people that of how much impact we do have on this stuff. But let's talk about time horizons for a second. I thought that, I think that it's really interesting that Spur works on these kind of like long time horizons. Yeah. And that is really unique, especially in this day and age where a lot of people are, especially in and around government, where they're working with elected officials that are not going to be here you know, 20 years from now, in a lot of cases, working with citizens who might, you know, not be here 20 years from now, working with people and organizations and companies that might not be around 20 years from now or longer. How do you look at time horizons and building for truly the future? Great question. A main exercise in planning is thinking about the long term and thinking about laying out a city or building a city in a way that it persists. We think of cities as places that outlast people's lives, that outlast politicians' tenures, that outlast institutions. And I think that it is our job as urbanists and urban planners and as people who think about sustainability, which is what I do, to think about impacts, opportunities, challenges that we're leaving to the next generation and the generation after that and try to minimize the harm or risk that they may face and also increase opportunity for more people to live here. So I think our organization has for a long time been dedicated to continuous improvement and it's not always immediate in the built environment, in the transportation system, in earthquake resilience, in thinking about climate change adaptation and resilience. We're working on a project right now, a strategy for the Bay Area, regional sort of planning ideas that 
we're thinking about the time horizon of 2070. Like, what are the big moves we need to do to make the Bay Area still a working place, a vibrant place, a place that attracts people from all over the world while maintaining a sustainable lifestyle for them in 2070? Like, we have to think beyond our own lifetimes in order to come up with the ideas, I think, that take a long time to implement. That's another thing. You know, I have to think about what you said about short-term thinking doesn't always lead to better outcomes. And it also can be very, you might make, it takes a long time to do things that are really good sometimes. And I think as humans, we can be really impatient and be like, oh, that rail project is going to take 10 years. Like it's easy to discount its importance, but it actually takes a long time to do things well. And it's part of it is actually doing the design, construction, engineering, and developing the thing itself. But a lot of it is actually just building a public consensus that that infrastructure investment is important and that that sustainability move is going to make a difference to the next generation. And so part of our job as urbanists is convincing people, educating people about the value of long-term thinking. Well, I think, you know, here in the Bay Area, which is really not unlike any other city when you look at like mass transit and things like that, I think there's always the interim fights of who gets the next BART stop or who gets the next like public transit stop or bus stop or whatever it is. And those things, not to trivialize that, those are really important to those communities. But 50 years from now, all of those places will have a BART stop or whatever it is. Like that, like in the long term, all of those solutions will be solved in theory if it's planned correctly. And I think that one of the things that we talked about with Stephen Karen and James Timberlake was the idea of these cities that were built on grids that the plan for the city wasn't realized until like hundreds of years later. Right. Look at cities that were built that the planner had this idea and that really didn't actually get expanded upon for hundreds of years. And I think, and then we talked to Jed Halbert of the city of Detroit about how some of the plans that that they made, not in his tenure, but about pushing people out of cities and and the sprawl and going to those suburban areas had a huge impact for the next 40 years and essentially, you know, caused the a lot of the destruction that happened in the city of Detroit. Like those timing, th- that planning, those time horizons, like you're planting the seeds one way or the other. And they're either, you know, you're going to get there 40 years from now and nothing is going to have, it's going to work backwards or it's going to say, hey, you know, the people 40 years ago were, were pretty smart with where they thought we were going. Right. I mean, there are definitely lots of mistakes that planners made in the past. I mean, the legacy of urban renewal and raising homes and moving people out based on race. I mean, obviously a terrible legacy, a lot of bad decisions. And so we have to be humble about the role of planning and the value of planning, especially when it's not an inclusive conversation. But I think we've also benefited in many ways from decisions that people made in the past that have gone on to preserve a legacy for us. For example, like the Golden Gate National Recreation Area, which is a really important national park that spans San Francisco and parts of Marin County and San Mateo counties. That wouldn't have necessarily happened on its own. That was a huge fight. People wanted to develop the hills in Marin. And some people said, let's not do that. This is a special place. Let's preserve it. And without that moving forward, the Bay Area would look very different now. So we have some of our some of our urban footprint is the legacy of good planning and some of it is the legacy of bad planning. And so I think the more inclusive we can be about making big decisions today that affect the urban form of tomorrow, the more likely we're going to be to get it right around having future generations look back at the decisions we made and say, oh, good thing they did that. <laughs> it would be much, you know, if we were if we were terribly top down and some of the ways that the planning world was organized 50 years ago or even more recently than that, if we were to continue along that path, we might not get as good of outcomes. Switching gears to global warming, water scarcity, and ecological collapse. This is, you know, three of the huge problems that you're working on on a day-to-day basis. Explain the problem that we face. I guess just explain the problem first, and then we'll kind of go into like some of the areas, some of the solutions that can happen with that. Well, okay. I'm not sure we can solve global warming, water scarcity, and ecological collapse, but of course we need to work on those things. I think the first one is probably 
a most important one. Global warming is a, there's a consensus around it. We all know what's happening. We can see it happening in California today with the drought that we've had, with the incredible fires that are burning all across California right now. The signal of global warming is in all this environmental change. And we know there will continue to be additional impacts, such as more frequent and severe heat waves, more sea level rise and urban flooding, lots of other impacts. But what is going on is fundamental change in the earth that we have a responsibility to take on as nations, as industries, companies, cities. Everybody has a role to play. I think California is actually doing a great job of showing how to develop an, a policy architecture around stopping global warming. And I hope that it is one that will be replicated nationally someday. We do have an international consensus forged in 2015 with the Paris Agreement to try to slow global warming, to stop it and hold it at two degrees C. But who knows if we're on the right track? I think we have the evidence is suggesting that we're not, and there's much, much more we need to do. So one of the things we work on in that respect or that I work on is identifying ways that local policy and city policy can complement what's happening at the state level, which again has different regulatory powers from the federal government. There are some things that cities exclusively do where they can control or help to reduce the carbon footprint of their of their city that the state and the federal government can't really reach into. For example, cities do almost all of the land use planning. They do almost all of the transportation funding and planning. They decide whether or not to build bike lanes. They make decisions about waste management, recovery and recycling. They make decisions about fuels and about electricity, some of the time, not all the time. So there's a lot of ways that cities can, through the way that they choose to grow and the fuels that they choose to use and the products that they choose to buy, can affect how their city does more or less to help combat global warming. And cities around the world have taken on this challenge. It's not just San Francisco. There are a bunch of city networks that are international where cities have taken stepped up and said, we actually can do a lot about this and we're going to try. So I feel like that is very hopeful, actually. There's, some, there's a lot of hope there in the fact that cities are know what they can do and are trying to do it and are trying to compete with each other to develop new ideas and share them. On water scarcity, that, that well, hold is... Hold on. Let okay, me, sorry, go back. Yeah, no, that, that was really well said. And I think that to echo that point, I think there's so many different moving parts in this that it's like, you're right, we can't... I mean, can't boil the ocean, although we are. But no, we can't solve all of those problems at once. But there is a large amount of impact that everyone can do. And I think that what you were saying with like local governments being a spearhead effort for this, when we talked to Ryan Popple, the CEO of Proterra, it's like perfect example. A bus, a diesel bus gets four miles to the gallon and is just burning barrels and barrels of diesel oil every single day in our environment. That's a fact. Like, there's no, like, it's not good. We know it's horrible for us. And an electric bus replaces that and is sufficient, sustaining, and in the very near future is going to be the mode of transportation. It's just a matter of time. It's a matter of cities taking a stand and just saying, hey, we're not going to let this happen anymore. And when that happens at scale, hopefully in the very near future, we're going to be in a better place. Agreed. But like that's a huge, you're talking about thousands and millions of barrels of oil that is burned every single day. I mean, he was saying that I think there's like 6,000 buses in New York City operating 24-7. I mean, like yeah, that's I mean, crazy. Most municipal fleets are based on an older technology. And I think Proterra and other companies are trying to change the, the fuel mix. And that's really important. And as I've said before, there's a lot of the sustainable technologies that we need are available. We know what they are, and they're starting to become cost competitive. I mean, look at the price of solar. It's gone down so much. Yep. It's competitive with other sources now at a utility scale. And the question is, can we implement those things fast enough to bend the curve against global warming? That's the challenge. We have to, as you said, we have to scale them up. We have to do it quickly. And that is one of the challenges that we face today. Cities have to take those actions. They have to replace their fleet when it's time to replace them with an EV bus. Cars are going the same way. I don't think we have 
San Jose, California is the EV electric vehicle capital of the United States, but it's still less than 10% of the cars. We have to do better. And, and San Jose has, and I don't know the exact stat, but it is one of the highest of big cities in America. I think it's like top three in most cars. I think it's like 1.9 cars per family in San Jose. So you're talking about getting to, and again, it's if you're talking about only 10%, we need to do, there's a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of work that needs to be done in order to that to do that stuff. I mean, what's your magic wand for that? Is that just like, you know, if you had the magic wand, it's just like, and obviously people, cities can make their own choices of what makes sense for their city. I understand that. But if every bus is EV, that makes a dent. We were talking to Lori Johnson about if just all of people's driveways, so we stop making concrete driveways, just that amount of land that is now no longer concrete can reduce the heat in a city and those those type of things. Like there are measures right. that we can look at that at scale across in the United States can make a huge difference. Right. Tree planting is another one of those things that has huge benefits. Trees provide shade. They cool nearby buildings. They cool down streets. They absorb rainwater. They provide habitat. They do so many important things. And we are losing tree canopies in lots of cities um, without actively going out there and replanting them. So that's a very important climate mitigation and adaptation strategy that we should be doing more of. Can we talk about redwoods really quick? Are we like replanting redwoods? Like, are we, I know there's like eucalyptus and all that sort of stuff of like the eucalyptus came in or that like people we planted. Yeah. Eucalyptus is non-native. Non-native. Not a good species for for, yeah, for us in in the Bay Area here. This is a bit Bay Area-centric. But the idea, though, like some of the most forward-looking or long-term thinking people are foresters, obviously, because you have to plant forests and they're going to grow in the time, in your lifetime. Like what is what does that look like? Are people working on that stuff? I'm just curious. Well, I can't really speak to forestry in rural areas right now, like redwood forests, for example. I know they're California's conservation network has developed a lot of protected open spaces that are tr- that where we're trying to conserve redwood forests and protect that really amazing species from being lost to further logging or fire, which are some of the things that have we have lost. Red- we used to do a lot of logging in California. We yeah. still do a lot of logging, but we used to do a lot of redwood logging, and there's I think less now. But I'm really I'm really not super qualified to talk about redwood reforestation. But oh, I just, I meant, sorry, I meant in cities. Oh. I, I meant like, you know, our CEO, Chad at the Mission, they have three redwoods in their backyard. You know, like I have, my family has three redwoods in our backyard, stuff like that. Those type of things matter too, right? Yes, definitely. Tree planting in cities is really important. It's often up to individuals to decide to plant a tree. Just last year in, or 2016 in San Francisco, we passed a, a law that was a voter approved where we set aside some money for the first time, a consistent amount that was enough to take care of the trees that are in our streets. That's really important. The city is taking responsibility to care for and to plant and to maintain trees in the public right of way. That wasn't a thing before we passed this law. And so that is the, that kind of thing is really important. And it's a way that the city shows that it's interested in stewarding the natural environment. But there's in a city like this where a lot of people have lots with backyards, there's a real opportunity to do more forestry in people's backyards. And that's that's a good thing. It can only help. We also need to take care of the trees that we have in parks and yeah. pl- plan for succession and other things. But I think that there is a growing urban forest movement I've had some conversations with people from CAL FIRE who have an urban forestry program because there's a growing recognition that urban forests provide lots of benefits to cities and to cooling and to habitat and other things. And so we need to do better about maintaining and not losing urban canopies. Let's talk about water scarcity. Mm -hmm. I guess you can kind of just fill in kind of the the issue here and and kind of talk solutions. Sure. So... Water scarcity is like one of the most enduring policy issues and problems in California. And it's not just California, even around the West and now even more on the East Coast, where there has often been or there has always seemed to be abundant water, there are starting to be more and more conflicts around water as a resource and who has claims to it. In California, of course, we live in a Mediterranean climate. We have 
a changing climate where we typically have stored our water supply as snow in the Sierra. The, C- the Sierra snowpack melts slowly and trickles into reservoirs and conveyances that move water from east to west in California. So from the from the mountains to the cities and also from north to south to f- provide water for farms, to provide water to Southern California. As the climate is changing, we think more of the, the science suggests that more of the snow will fall or may fall as rain. And that means that we don't have the capture and storage systems that the the systems that we've designed are not meant to catch rain and hold rain. And so we may lose more of that water, which maybe is a great thing for the environment, actually, because the Bay Delta, where the main rivers of California flow, has been somewhat denuded of freshwater inputs because we divert so much water coming out of the mountains. But it is a problem for water supply and for the 20, 40 million Californians who want to drink fresh water and for the farm industry, which is reliant upon it as well. So some of our solutions in this area are thinking more about what can we do around local and more sustainable water supplies instead of building or reinvesting in a giant plumbing system that moves water from east to west in the state and from north to south, which uses a huge amount of energy as well especially to pump water over the mountains to get to Southern California. We can do more with water recycling and water reuse within urban areas where it's more cost-effective than in in rural and farming situations. And we can do more with brackish desalination, with groundwater management. There are a lot of new technologies that enable us to reuse the water that we already import and, and, of course, there's, a, there's been a lot of investment in efficiency and conservation, and we can still do more. So we are actually using less per person, a lot less per person of water than we used in the 1970s and 80s because technology has gotten so good and people are willing to use it now. I don't know if you remember when like low flow shower heads were like a total bummer. Yeah, totally. But now they're fine. They've come up with a way to like inject air in there and make it feel like a nice high quality shower. So people are fine with using less less gallons per minute because they can still have an enjoyable shower without using as much water. And so we've also made advances in irrigation technology and toilets in all of the ways that we use water. Rainwater capture is another, stormwater capture is another great way that cities and individuals alike can use diverse water resources instead of relying on the stuff that came from the Sierra. So you'll see cities in California, and this is something we're trying to do, branch out use new water sources, reuse water sources that are more sustainable and more local while continuing to implement conservation and even better technology as it comes along. I think that that stuff is so fascinating. And you look at what the farming industry is doing with like drone footage and all the different things of like, you know, having the little water droplets on the individual plants and all. I mean, I don't, I'm not an expert at that, obviously. But there are things that technology is doing to reduce waste. And waste is the name of the game for a lot of that stuff is we just didn't know how much we were wasting or we didn't have an accurate picture of how much we're wasting. And now that technology helps us know at least, at least we start with a position of being like, oh, where it turns out we were wasting a ton. And now we can kind of start backwards planning some of those things. And then the technology helps us, like you said, with the you know low flow toilets and low flow showers and all those things that now you know, significantly reduce waste. Right. It's important because it's once we've brought a precious drop of clean water all the way to the Bay Area from the Sierra, like to see it wasted feels like a real, like that is a that is an error. Yeah. <laughs> we shouldn't let that happen. So we can be doing more and I think we'll continue to see the technology evolve and make it possible. So I want to talk about high-performance buildings and smart infrastructure what type of projects have you seen that you're working on, that you've been involved with, that, are, you know, across the Bay Area that are kind of innovative and, and cutting edge? Well, in the built environment, I would say, so we mostly work on policy and not on specific projects, but I can tell you how policy has evolved yeah. to make high-performance buildings even more attractive an in investment and to make them even more 
more prevalent in the built environment. So when we talk about high-performance buildings, we're talking about buildings that are regenerative or are at least net zero energy or have sustainable technologies where they're recycling their own wastewater or they have a green roof, which helps with cooling and with water capture. There are a lot of... So going back to the California building code kind of sets a baseline and it evolves every couple of years and it's a pretty good baseline. So as we build new buildings in California, they're continuing to be more energy efficient and more water efficient. The state has set goals of zero net energy. All new residential buildings will be zero net energy. All new commercial buildings will be zero net energy by 2030. Do you want me to break that down? Yeah. Zero net energy basically just means that over the course of a year, the building contributes or it doesn't take any additional energy from the grid than it creates or puts back on. So so how does it do that? By being super efficient, energy efficient, and by putting solar on the roof or using electric heat pumps or other ways to just really shrink the building's energy footprint and creating energy themselves and sometimes putting energy back onto the grid. So that's what net zero energy means. And I believe that when we talk to Dino... Roberts, the head of facilities at Slack, I believe that their new building is net zero, and I believe Salesforce Tower is net zero. That's probably true. I'm I'm not sure. I'm pretty sure. I, I off the top of my head, I, I think so. But yeah, that those it's are- probably true because now it's possible. So in 2008, in San Francisco, sorry, we we adopted a green building ordinance that said we want to use the lead rating system, which is put out by the U.S. Green Building Council. It's very well known. Um, it's used all over the world. And it creates certain standards or ideas around better mobility options, better energy efficiency, better water efficiency, and various other things about building envelope and other things, renewable energy generation, low-impact design, and green infrastructure incorporation to manage stormwater runoff. You know, it kind of creates a rating system. And we said, okay, over five years, we're going to ramp this up. So all new buildings built in San Francisco by 2012 are going to be at one of the highest lead standards, lead gold. And when the ordinance was going through the public process, people were concerned that this issue was just a fad or it would really add significant cost to construction or the industry would not get up to speed with providing the materials and the, the technologies that we needed to meet those standards but it has really not been very hard. And now buildings, now a lot of building owners and sponsors like perhaps Salesforce and others want to exceed what we require. The net zero energy goals that the state has are just goals. They're not requirements yet. But building owners and managers are starting to see that the benefits to building occupants and as an attractive building to sell the sustainability benefits are something that people consider. And so it's there's a market for it. And a lot of new buildings are exceeding standards because they can. And, and because people want to demonstrate leadership in this area and, and try to demonstrate that those goals will be feasible and provide buildings that are exceeding what people think right now is the average. And so that's, that's good to see. I think we've also advanced that through policy. I can speak to in San Francisco, we've not just established a green building ordinance 10 years ago, but we've gone on to require specific things that weren't part of it that now, for example, if, you have, if you're building a really large new commercial building, you have to build on-site water reuse and recycling into it. If you're building a, a type of building that has a lot of parking in it, you have to provide a certain amount of that parking with electric vehicle charging infrastructure. Things like this, we've gone on to sort of say, these things can be done and they should be done. We want a built environment that is continually improving with the technologies that we know we need to have everywhere within a few years in order to meet our responsibilities around global climate change. I think that that's just remarkable. If you if you look at that, it's just 10 years ago. I mean, you look at the amount of change. Basically, what you said is in five years, we want to be at this point. And now you've exceeded that in many different projects and really set the standard that people are excited about going above and beyond the the lead standard. Right. And I think the California Public Utilities Commission just recently created a requirement for 
all new residential development to have solar on the roof because it's so cost competitive now. Before they were just requiring your roof to be solar ready so it could someday take, it was constructed in a way that it could someday take solar PV panel. But now they've just taken the next step and said, you know, everybody can do this now, which is, this is, this is great for meeting our net zero goals and for the global climate and for California's climate ambitions. So what are some best practices that you think are directly applicable to other cities? Like, and not just cities in the U.S., but cities around the world. Like, what are some of those things? And again, like, obviously there's a million inputs that go into that and local and national governments and all of that. Different areas of the world have different climates. All that being said, what are some best practices here that really you think could be industry leading for the rest of the world? Well, I think that a lot of the things we talked about are best practices that help achieve a benefit for everyone. So energy efficiency, like wasted energy or any kind of wasted resources is just a cost to everyone. It's a cost to building occupants who have to occupy a building that is not comfortable. It is a waste for building owners who often pay utility bills. And if they're wasting energy, their utility bills are higher. So there are a number of ways that we basically building efficiency and energy efficiency is one of the most cost-effective things you can do to make the built environment greener and also more efficient. That's one thing. Building retrofits is one of the ways that you can implement through energy audits and benchmarking and other ways you can learn what your standard should be for the type of building you have. And then there are a number of best practices around improving energy efficiency that you can implement that often yield utility cost savings in a very short amount of time. So that's one thing, energy efficiency and conservation. Another thing is water efficiency. You can retrofit your fixtures, which also saves energy costs because hot water uses a lot of energy and sometimes pumping cold water uses energy. So you can save costs on energy and water by being more efficient with your fixtures and your uses. On the outside of the building, there are a couple things. Green roofs or solar roofs are something that should be on every building. It's not... It's, it's a better roof. It provides benefits to the city. We have a lot of boring rooftops that do nothing for anyone. That's a great point. I mean, who whoever cares about a rooftop? It's not like you look at a big building and be like, you, most of us can't see it anyways. But even if you could, it's still... It's to, if you look at it from a bird's eye perspective, it's just a wasted space. We've just created a gray or in some cases white because that's what the building code typically requires. We've created this very resource inefficient space that could be habitat. It could be public space for people to hang out on. It could be generating energy. It could be retaining stormwater. So green roofs or solar roofs are some combination of those. Solar hot water is also great, especially for multifamily buildings. Those things could be on every roof and benefit both the building occupants as well as the... There have been a number of studies that show that for green roofs especially, there are a number of benefits that go well beyond the building envelope and confer benefits with respect to urban cooling and and other things well beyond the the, the building's borders. What the, one of the buildings in Oakland, the gym I go to, 24-Hour Fitness, the roof of, I forget what it's called, that it's like on Webster and whatever, but it's a, it's literally a park. I mean, it is, it's like a full park with like, there's like fountains and trees and everything. It's like, probably a six-story building and it has just like a gigantic park on on top of it. And it's amazing. People love going there. People take their lunch there. It's like yeah. having a, you know, floating park. Right. You can't usually do stuff like that on really tall buildings because there's a lot of equipment that has to go on the roof. But when you have like a medium-sized building, you can make that space into a place for people to enjoy while providing environmental benefits. So why not? So that's another thing. And then, so building envelope, efficiency, green roof, solar generation or solar hot water. Oh, in the open spaces around a building, managing rainwater on site is increasingly important. We have a lot of, in a lot of cities, the rivers that collect or that are forced to take runoff get polluted by that urban runoff. It's full of like brake pads and dog poop and little metals and cigarette butts and stuff like that. And so we 
need to do a better job in many cities of trying to do a better job retaining the water that falls on site on a property so that it just kind of goes into the ground there or gets reused instead of being shunted into the street where it collects all those nasty things and then dumped directly into a creek or a river where it causes a lot of pollution and messes with the environment. So that's another thing we can do more, a lot more of is just taking away, you mentioned earlier, like taking away concrete driveways, like turning them into something softer that can is porous and can collect water. Like that's a simple thing that can be done. Um, and when we build new buildings, we can also mimic a little bit of the natural environment that they replaced by making sure that it drains in a way that doesn't contribute to bad runoff and nearby pollution. I love that. I mean, those are just great examples. And if like like I said, the magic wand. It's just like every building's net zero, every building has solar on top or a green roof or something like that. It should just be best practice. Right. And another thing I have to say, because it's it's this this is an important urbanist perspective on buildings. It's not just the individual building that is important when you think about sustainability. It's where the building is. Yeah. You want to put buildings in a place where people have transportation options and cities have a huge role to play in providing those options. So if you build a wonderful, sustainable, net zero, water retaining, water reusing building out in the middle of a green field where everyone who works there has to drive there, what are you doing are you really contributing to the environment or are you worsening air pollution? Are you worsening congestion? Are you, if you don't provide people an option to get there that is other than driving alone, I don't think you could call that a sustainable building. I think you have to think about location efficiency along with energy efficiency and water efficiency as a component of sustainability. So a building that is more sustainable is one that is in a place where people can take transit or can bike or walk to work or are provided with those options or carpooling or just some other way than driving alone. So that's important too. That was great. Little lightning round action. Do you sure. want to do it? Yeah. Ready? Okay. Do you have an app you're using on your phone that's the most fun? The most fun? Yeah. Uh, I'm really into Goodreads right now. Ooh, I've never wow. tracked my books, and I've decided that this way I won't just stumble into the library, which we go to with our family all the time, and wonder what's going to be there. This way I, I have a plan. I have a strategy. What's your favorite recent book that you've read? I just read Little Fires Everywhere by Celeste Ng, which I really loved. Oh, I've not checked it out. Favorite time-saving tool? I actually use my calendar. I look at my calendar all the time. Somehow just having a mental map of what the blocks of time are that I'm committed to for the next 10 hours seems to help me manage my time more efficiently. Totally agree. <laughs> Do you have a favorite team, sports or otherwise? I have to go with my daughter's first grade soccer team, the Mighty Lions. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Go Mighty Lions. Yeah, thank you. Favorite podcast or show that you're watching or listening to? I... Cannot stop listening to Snap Judgment. I don't know it. Oh my gosh, it's so good. It's people's stories told, usually from their own perspective. The host is Glenn Washington. It's based in Oakland. Check it out. Awesome, I will. Favorite one-day getaway in the Bay Area? Mm, one-day getaway in the Bay Area. I love to, well, when I have friends and family visiting, I love to take them to Land's End, which is on the north West corner of San Francisco. It's a little walk along the bluffs. It's part of the Golden Gate National Recreation Area. But for myself, I love to go up to the Marin Point Reyes area and cycle along Route 1 there. Point Reyes, the best. <laughs> what thing are you most excited about for the future of cities? I am intrigued by the possibility of I have two. Can I say two? Is that you cheating? You can say two. All no, right. Of course not. So two. So the first one is I'm intrigued by, as are I think all urbanists right now, by the potential future of autonomous vehicles for potentially making roadway space much more efficiently used and hopefully fully electrified. Yep. I mean, if we have an autonomous vehicle future that is not electric vehicles, it will be very bleak. So my hope is that that's the way that that technology converges, those technologies converge. I'm interested in watching how that potentially makes for more freed up public space in cities because we want to park cars as much, yep. as well as making eliminating congestion. So that's one. And the second thing, 
and this is my dream for the Bay Area, is we need a fully separated bicycle network that connects the cities of the Bay Area. And by fully separated, I mean where bikes and cars don't have to share the road without some kind of barrier or safety between them. Because we have an excellent climate for bicycling. Electric bicycles and cargo bicycles, electric cargo bicycles, are going to make it possible for people who don't think of themselves as cyclists to find a, to have a sustainable mode of travel. But the one thing that keeps people, I think, from cycling more than they do, besides it just being kind of like hard work in a city as hilly as San Francisco is, although most cities in the Bay Area are not that hilly, is the, the likelihood of getting hit by a car. I mean, that's why my Absolutely. kid doesn't ride his bike to school. I, if there was a safe way for him to be able to do that, I would I would be so happy to see electric bicycles and a bicycle network sort of take off as the next way that people get around. With electric bicycles, you don't have to do the work. You can wear your work clothes. You don't have to feel like a cyclist. You're just taking a sustainable mode of transportation that is also so flexible and so fun. You can just stop off and get some coffee or drop your kids off at school or go visit someone or something on your way to work. And you could, the, the Bay Area is got a great climate for it. I think we need to establish something like that Amsterdam style as a way of providing, besides autonomous electric vehicles and public transportation, of course, is a third most popular way for people to get around and potentially becoming more and more popular over time. Yeah, I mean, I I 100% agree. I am not, my, my friends and family would know, I am not a cyclist. And I think that that's what's so exciting about whether it's the scooters or whether it's the you know new electric bikes or whatever it is, that there's going to be basically non-vehicle options yes. that people can, and it could be a one of those banana bikes. It could be whatever is your kind of thing du jour. I mean, obviously the segue didn't, didn't work out, but the idea that there's going to be options that you could have. And if there was a way that you could do that safely, because I think that, I think you're exactly right that it's more about safety than anything else. That's right. what people, that's why people resist it. It's effort, safety. They don't want to ruin their pant leg or, you know, their dress or something like that. Right. But those options of like what what makes you feel safe and comfortable, those things that we've, we've kind of just like toyed around with this stuff for a long time and never really had the tech catch up to us. And I think finally the tech is really, really close. Yeah, I think the tech is definitely getting there. It's not super affordable yet, so we need to have ways to like make it more affordable for people and more accessible. But we need to build the the cities need to build the infrastructure that will change our culture around bicycling. So it's not just cyclists and people who feel hardcore yep. who are riding on the streets. It's everyone from six year olds to grandmas. Yep, I totally agree. Any uh, any kind of final thoughts? We didn't do disaster resilient communities, so we could we could touch on that quickly if you want. Um, sure. Yeah, I think increasingly as climate change continues, despite the contribution that cities can make to help reduce it or slow it down, cities still have to prepare for a lot of the effects of climate change, whether it's wildfires or extreme heat or water scarcity or too much water and flooding or sea level rise. I mean, all these things are affecting California today and many cities around, around the world. So resilience is an increasingly important thing for planners and cities to take on. A lot of cities in the last five years have been developing resilience plans that outline what some of their biggest risks are, whether natural disaster type of risks or just resiliency, slow burn problems or challenges like things like poverty and homelessness. Like you can't solve a major natural disaster if you already have a population that's struggling and suffering. And so we have to, we have to kind of work on both fronts to sort of improve our community resilience. And so it's social, it's physical, it's it's economic. And these resilience plans often reflect what cities want to do to work on those problems. Here in the Bay Area, we happen to have a lot of both. <laughs> we have a challenge. We, we're not having a lot of economic resiliency challenges in many parts of the Bay Area, but we are in others. The tech boom has left 
many behind. And so those, and there are struggling populations. We've seen homelessness become more visible in the Bay Area in recent years. So solving those problems, helping homeless people is a really important part of it. But on the natural disaster side, we know they're going to, it's going to be more frequent and maybe we shouldn't call it natural disasters. They're really more sort of unnatural disasters. We know that those, those effects are ones that we have to plan for too. And so if you look at like the city of Oakland or the city of San Francisco's resilience plan, they focus on how we can improve our infrastructure readiness for a disaster, how we can strengthen community resilience and neighborhood scale resiliency and response to an earthquake or some disaster that might strike unexpectedly and other things. So I think it's up to organizations like SPUR and other community organizations to continue to socialize and educate about what the resiliency challenges are and what we can do about them. And I think we're starting to see a lot of forward progress in some cities. I can give a couple examples of that, but I don't have to. No, I think that that's great. I think that's good. We touched a lot of that stuff with with Lori and. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, Lori knows a lot about disasters. Yeah, that's why I just. I would just say to... a couple a couple ones. I'll just tick yeah. off. Are I'll give you two examples from the Bay Area. So one is the seawall that was built under the Embarcadero is over a hundred years old, and it's basically like a pile of rocks on mud. It's not like an engineered seawall that is built to withstand a major quake. And yet the Embarcadero is holding up a lot of, that, that seawall is holding up a lot of land that was used to be just water that was just created by fill after they filled the water behind the seawall that had been built. And so it's a really important piece of infrastructure for holding up a lot of downtown San Francisco, but it also has a lot of utility lines that run through it, sewer, major sewer lines. It has the Muni and BART lines in it. So it's it's a really important critical piece that is totally not ready for a major earthquake. So as a key piece of San Francisco's resilience plan, we are going to try to retrofit and shore up the seawall to be ready for both a major earthquake and sea level rise. And there's a, a bond that'll be on the ballot for voters in November that will help to make a major injection of resources toward sort of immediate life safety improvements. On a second side, uh, or a, a second example I'll give is in recent years, the water utility providers in the Bay Area came together around improving reliability in the face of severe drought and earthquakes too, which affect potentially affect everyone. And one thing that they did that they did or that they invested in was a lot more connections between the systems that serve their customers. So for example, if there's a breakage or an earthquake that affects one water utility in a part of the East Bay, another part of the East Bay can supply it with water. So they mm. built a lot of what are called interties between their systems so that we can get water to where it's needed for drinking and for firefighting after an earthquake, which is a really important voluntary activity that they took on to try to build resilience in the water systems that serve us. So we're making some progress. There's a lot more to do, but those are just a couple examples of what the Bay Area is doing about it right now. That's really cool. Yeah, that's great. All right. That's it. Anything else? Nope. That's it. Thanks so much for, for hanging out. Thanks for having me. It was fun to talk to you. Thank you to our friends at Katera. The multi-trillion dollar global construction industry is ready for change. Katera's end-to-end team is joining together from different industries to innovate the future of building. Learn how you can join their growing team at katera.com or click the link in our show notes. Hey listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.